Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This episode is part of a podcast mini series for Black History Month where we will be uplifting and highlighting conversations regarding Black communities. Today we are talking about anti racism and therapy. My name is Emily Mitchell, my pronouns are she, her, and I am the Education Coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Dr. Vashana Chapel. Dr. Chapel uses she, her pronouns and is an Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Central Florida. She is an anti-racist social justice scholar whose areas of clinical practice and research include intersectional identity, mental health disparities, and access to culturally responsive services for Black women, deaf women, and other marginalized communities. She received her BSW, MSW, and PhD in Justice Studies from Arizona State University. So Dr. Chabell, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And I also have returning Brandy Godby. Brandy uses she, her pronouns and is the lead therapist at the VSC and is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida. She is trained in EMDR and is a certified clinical trauma professional. Brandy has been advocating for sexual trauma survivors through VSC since 2012 and supports every person's right to peace and freedom in their lives. So Brandy, thank you for coming back onto the podcast once again. Well, thank you for having me back. I am excited for today's conversation. I am super excited about this one as well. Um, As everyone uh, listening hopefully knows, February is Black History Month or African American History Month, which is a time to uplift and bring awareness to the history of these communities. Recently, the VSC was awarded a 2020 Table Talk grant by the Central Florida Foundation to launch a mini podcast series to come out during Black History Month to highlight and uplift conversations about issues affecting Black communities and Black survivors of trauma. In this episode, we will be defining anti-racism and what it means to be anti-racist, addressing the issue of how therapy is taught, written about, and practiced in a white lens, and how that can affect African-American communities and the BIPOC community, and how mental health professionals can create safe anti-racist spaces for their Black identified clients. So with that, um, I wanted to first start off with some definitions here just so we can have a nice 
framework to start off our conversation. So I was hoping, uh, and of course it could be Dr. Chapel or Brandy, whoever wants to jump in first. Um, I have been hearing the term anti-racism a lot in the media lately. So what exactly is anti-racism and how is it different from multiculturalism? It's, it's interesting in thinking about this question, I first kind of thought, okay, what is the definition of the, the difference or what is the definition of anti-racist? Cause it's right there um, in the title. Um, but when you think about the difference between anti-racist or anti-racism and multiculturalism, you know, when we start putting two terms together, we think that one must be good and one must be bad or, or what is the difference because they're pretty close. So the best way to describe anti-racism is exactly what it is, to not be racist, yes, but to be against racism actively. Um, the term was first used by Angela Davis or Dr. Angela Davis when she said that it's not good enough to be against racism or not racist. You must actively fight against white supremacy and racism. And recently, um, Dr. Um, Ibram Kendi has written a book <laughs> how to be anti-racist. Um, and he basically talks about the different ways in which we perpetuate white supremacy and racism just in our everyday practices because our country um, is founded on it. And in order to fight it, we have to name it and identify it and then continue to try to break down the systems. So to be anti-racist is to actually fight continually every day against racism as a system. Um, so that doesn't mean that, you know, um, you know, Uncle Jim said something racist and or said something, you know, out of the norm, the said something racist and we want to correct him. We're thinking about the entire system that sets up. Um, race-based uh, mental health and health disparities. So the difference between that and then coming, thinking about multiculturalism is it's, it's kind of subtle. Multiculturalism means that we wanna bring everybody together and we wanna try to include people in our spaces. So that would be in work, that would be in education, um, that would be seeing, you know, kind of looking around and saying, okay, there are no BIPOC individuals or people of color here. So we want to be inclusive and kind of bring them on. We want to be not just white people in a room or not just black people in the room. We want to be multicultural, um, which is great. However, what ends up happening is once we bring people in and we include them, we don't necessarily listen to them. We don't put them in leadership roles and we don't break down the systems that cause them to not be there in the first place. So even though multiculturalism is good, right. it does not fight against the racism and the white supremacist um, kind of layers or themes that are set up in our society. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I really appreciate you breaking that down. I think that's an important distinction and I also wanted to ask if you could also uh, identify what BIPOC means, just in case people who are listening might not know. Thank you. Um, I thought about that when you said it earlier and then I totally forgot. So BIPOC is the acronym for Black Indigenous People of Color. So it's B-I-P-O-C. Um, 
And the reason that this acronym kind of came about, it's been around for about four or five years, even though maybe this year people have started thinking about it, um, was there, there are differences amongst uh, minority or minoritized, as we call it, groups, in that some groups you can see them, particularly as, as a Black individual, when you look at me, you, you know I'm Black. And there are some groups um, like maybe um, Latinas, for example, where they can be white passing or can look a certain way. Um, and so what happened with the, the people who created this, this particular term was instead of saying kind of black, the black community or people of color and not being very distinctive about whom they were talking about, they came up with the acronym BIPOC or BIPOC. Because when I say BIPOC or BIPOC, I'm talking about Black, Indigenous, and people of color all together as a group and all of the issues that affect the entire community of non-white individuals. And if I then am talking about the Black community, I'm talking about the Black community. If I'm talking about Indigenous folks, I'm talking about Indigenous folks, that sort of thing. Got it. Thank you so much for explaining that. I think that, yes, I, I, I agree. I, have, I haven't heard of this term until this year. So I didn't know it was around for four or five years. So I thought and it was created. I didn't mean to, to interrupt you. It was created by um, two women, um, an Indigenous woman and a Black woman. Oh, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> um, also, you know, Dr. Chapel, you actually are doing an anti-racism training at the VSC, which we love. So thank you so much. I, I wanted to know um, if you could explain to our listeners, how, how do you teach anti-racism in your trainings? <laughs> um, that's a good question because it feels like it's different every time. Um, really what I want to do is um, be able to meet people where they are, and I don't want that to sound cliche. So I try to talk to people and find out um, what they know and what they don't know, and to try to help them think of the situations or to think of anti-racism in terms of their everyday life or whatever is going on with them. So typically, and this is the process that I went through with the VSC, was I wanted to meet um, people who work there, like the two of you, and to find out what you thought you needed and, and how I could help you understand how to better um, treat or better meet or serve you know, your clients. Mm -hmm. So really what I do is, and as someone who studies this you know, all the time, I know a lot about a, a lot of things. And so like what I'd like to do is just try to figure out what is the thing that you're most curious about in terms of practice or reaching people who are different from you, particularly if we're talking about race and how to best meet you there to help you to just understand a little bit more. I hope that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we love your training. So thank you so much for, you know, doing the work that you do. And within that training, you actually talked a little bit about ally, terms like ally, accomplice, and savior. So I was hoping you could kind of just break down the differences between these terms, between ally, accomplice, and savior. It's a, that, those are very, very interesting terms. And people have lots of feelings about it. <laughs> yes. So I'm just going to say that up front. Um, so the term ally actually came about more so from the LBGT community because 
people wanted to say, okay, I might not be uh, queer or identify as part of the community myself, but I wanna be supportive, right? So how do I identify myself as someone who is actively supportive, almost like anti-racist um, to the LBGT community, but I am not part of the LBGT community. So that's where ally came from. There's lots of ally trainings, we've heard about them and people typically will say, you know what, I'm an ally to this community. I'm here to support them. Um, I'm here to help them. And if they need anything that they can come you know, to me. Well, what ended up happening was allyship ended up becoming uh, uh, one of those terms where I can say I'm an ally, but if it's not convenient to me, I don't have to get involved, right? So you can be, I can be an ally to the LBGT community, but if it comes time to fight for someone who might be losing their job or to help actively work with someone and it becomes uncomfortable to me that I can back out. The same with you know um, any term, anti-racist ally or someone who's an ally to folks with disabilities. Typically when there, you need to have skin in the game for lack of a better term, someone with allyship can then just kind of passively support or actively back out. So then the term accomplice was kind of created because when we think of accomplice, we, I don't know about you, but we think of somebody maybe robbing a bank and somebody right. in the car, right? So that just means, you know, even though the, the term itself doesn't hold a, a great connotation, it just means that I'm in here with you. Whatever you're doing, whatever's going on, whatever comes out of it, I am there to help, to support, to be. And, you know, we are in partnership with this thing, even if I don't necessarily um, identify as part of that community or that group. Um, you know, so the next term would be savior. So if we think about where we kind of lie in different things, we become comfortable, right? So I might be comfortable identifying myself as an ally, maybe not so much as an accomplice or maybe so, but savior is one of those terms in which people aren't actually even thinking about where they fit. Mm. It's more so thinking that I am in this particular position. So usually we think of saviors when we're thinking of um, maybe a white individual versus uh, folks of color or someone who um, has um, money or means with someone who maybe does not have um, the same types of money or background saying that I wanna help this person so that I can feel better, right? But not necessarily wanting to understand their experience or getting involved with them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we'll see someone who, and, and not trying to judge you know, anyone who is you know, wanting to give money to um, a particular group or you know, even adopt someone of a different race, but typically when you are doing those types of things, if you are more concerned about what it looks like and who you can tell, then you're not actually really, really trying to get involved with that person, really help that person out of their situation. So savior kind of comes from the savior complex. It comes from this idea that even though I see all of these horrible atrocities in the world or different things going on, if I just help this one person, then that makes me a good person. Mm. which is completely different, I think, 
from an accomplice and maybe even so much from um, an ally as well. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, what I was hearing is that it's, it's a person coming from a place of privilege who might be aiding someone to maybe ease some guilt that they're feeling. Absolutely. And maybe perhaps driving the bus of change instead of letting those who are in communities that are of minority communities kind of make decisions and speak their mind, maybe kind of taking over certain things. So that makes a lot of sense. And thank you so much for breaking it down. The next question I have, I'd like to first give it to Brandy because I feel like I was <laughs> I was making Dr. Chapel talk a lot. So <laughs> sorry about that. But um, Brandy, you know, we've highlighted on this podcast before the importance of building rapport with a client when it comes to therapy. That being said, do you feel that the way therapy is taught, written about and conducted is done in a way that resonates with clients that identify in the BIPOC community? And of course, um, Dr. Chapel, you can jump in as well. Yeah, we love hearing from you, Dr. Chapel. So we needed to hear from, from Dr. Chapel to sure. start and identify this stuff. I mean, this is she's the pro, right? Um, but but no, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Um, so this question I think is super important. And while I really do value the training that I've had and the experiences that I've had, I mean, when we look at therapy from a historical lens, if we're going to incorporate the bigger pictures, there are a lot of people who are being oppressed during those times. So in some ways, it's like not a huge surprise that most of it comes from white men, right? This is, those were the powers that be in a lot of different places during the time that, you know, psychology was born. But do we really know that? Are we really, really digging into other cultures and countries? Not where I sit, um, not in the, you know, city, county, state, country that I live in, right? Mm -hmm. um, so. I would say that sometimes the answer to if it's being taught, written about, and conducted in a way that resonates with clients who identify as BIPOC, the answer would be no. No, it does not. Um, and I think that part of what has happened for, at least for me as I've grown as a therapist, is that I've continued to dig in and educate myself, not at the cost of my clients. I strongly believe it is not our client's duty to educate us, but as a professional, it's my responsibility to continue educating myself um, and, and not doing it through like a saviorism lens, but not relying on my clients to tell me what how I'm supposed to do something a certain type of way. And I just said that phrase, which is a great example, right? So I learned, um, which I'm going to call white therapy, um, but I, I feel like it is white therapy, where it's just kind of like, here's the language, here's here are the feelings, right? And let's get our clients to articulate their feelings, you know. And I'm using my like big words and all of this, and then I might have a client um, who's telling me that they caught feelings and they're feeling a certain type of way, and things are getting heated, and I know exactly what they're saying, and I say, okay, well, what are some other ways you can describe that? What feeling, you know, and it, it's ridiculous. And here I am beating around the bush trying to get them to say something the way that I was taught through a very strict lens, when truthfully, we are both already understanding each other quite clearly. So I think that's a great example of um, how if we're not as therapists adapting to really what's happening with our clients, then, then we're doing a disservice and we are performing white therapy rather than truly joining with our clients to help them you know, become, they're the experts in their lives, right? So, so helping them to kind of heal from whatever's coming up without trying to tell them that, no, no, this is how you drive the bus. No, no, put your hand at 10 and two. No, no, no. You know, like who cares? You can still drive with your hands at 
this is probably a terrible example because I'm like, what, nine and three? I don't know. <laughs> you could just do a 12. Like, that's fine, depending on traffic. But, you know, so, yeah, I think that um, it is super important for us to adapt to who our clients are um, in a number of ways, but especially in terms of race. I am a white cisgender woman, and I think that is pretty apparent by observing me. And so I know that I'm white and I know my clients can see that I'm white. Um, I used to, through my education, think that it was very important for me to acknowledge that in order to build rapport with clients who were of a different race or ethnic identity than myself, you know, it was like, well, let's bring this elephant out of the room and, and say it. And I thought that was what I was taught. And then I would do it and I'd have clients like, look at me like, yeah, I know. I know you're white. I can see you. Anyway, can we get back to what we were talking about? So I don't do that anymore. However, I still want to investigate with my clients various aspects of their identities and how they've experienced being in the world. Um, we do at the VSC assess for um, if anybody's experienced, you know, mistreatment or or harassment or abuse based on their identities, because that's going to give us a larger lens on who they are, not just the traumatic experiences they've been through that brought them to the agency. So for me, yes, we have that kind of multicultural lens or multicultural competencies, and I'm using finger quotes on a podcast, but <laughs> I'm doing that on purpose because, you know, we, I think sometimes it really is performative, like let's check this box. And I think that what qualified as social justice or multicultural competencies a decade ago is very different, you know, five years down the road, one year away. I mean, we need to keep evolving what that is. Um, I am not an academia, thank God in some ways. God love you, Dr. Chapel. I'm glad that people like you are digging into it. So I understand that, you know, we have to have folks out there who are, you know, going to do the research and qualify things and understand how things work. But honestly, I could probably talk on this. See, now I'm now I'm taking the mic. Um, but I think if we really look at like, okay, well then what about theories? Like where did these come from and how are they used today? In today's world. I don't know who wrote the DSM. Oh my goodness, was that the American Psychological Association? Oh my goodness, what do we need that for? Oh yeah, insurance companies. Who is covered by insurance companies? So I think we can really stretch the web out in a really big way if we're not thoughtful about what we're doing with the people in front of us. And when the people in front of us are the experts in their lives and they know what they're doing, then it's critical to hear from them what their lives have been like and not just go to a manual that, you know, is I don't even know, 5.0, so we can keep adding to it decimal point by decimal point to have it the way we need it to. So I may have gone off on a tangent. Um, Chapel, what are your thoughts? You did not. I, I love this. And if I can um, jump in just a, a little bit, what I was hearing um, from you, Brandy, just in, in terms of like, this is what I was taught. This is what I was doing. And I was told this is how you do therapy. And I think the one thing, I, I do a lot of mentorship of new um, counselors. And most of the time, the number one thing I'm telling people is yeah, meet your client where they are. And it's okay if it doesn't feel like therapy, as long as you are helping them, you know? So it depends on what they need. So if we're truly meeting them where they are, then, you know, we understand that something that may have worked on this other client may not work with this particular person. And most particularly, if they are a different race, ethnicity, gender, 
you know, have a different orientation or even religion, it might look different or sound different. Um, I think just to, you know, cap off what you said earlier, the one thing that I noticed the most was or is people trying to do particular therapies on people. Like I must do this for this person. And that is true. There are evidence-based theories and practices that you do, but you gotta get to know the person before you even know which theory might work and how it works. Um, I learned from this perspective, it was, I don't know if it was backwards or what, but I learned to learn the practice and the modality before even really understanding the name of it all the time. So I could pull out, I could know what to do, but I didn't always know the exact name until I, be, until I got in academia. But I understood how to listen and meet the person and engage with them and talk to them. And even though afterwards I might, you know, kind of ask myself, okay, was that therapy? I then asked the person, you know, if it was helpful to them. And I think that that's the biggest thing that people tend to forget, particularly when we're thinking about the fact that most of the interventions were created by white people for white people, yeah. and particularly white men. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I know research shows the most helpful aspect of therapy is, is the relationship. Can you build a relationship with this person? And that is going to change by the clients you're working with. Um, not that we have to be mirrors of, you know, we don't have to like identify, like, I don't need to go to a white cisgender female therapist personally, because I'm white cisgender female, right? Like we can work across difference quite frequently, of course. Um, but we do have to be able to meet our clients where they are and be comfortable in what that looks like. And I was just thinking, um, I am grateful that I, I do have kind of that arts lens. I have a master of arts in clinical mental health counseling, because it is an art in some ways to combine what's going to happen. And, you know, we, I did some work um, in my practicum before I did my internship where we were listening partners. We were not therapists, we were listening partners. And I met with my listening partner, you know, weekly for whatever it was, the 10 weeks. Were we doing therapy? Yes, we were. You know, we were meeting as listening partners and doing therapy. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's definitely out there, but I just think it, it requires that awareness. It's not it's not the, the cartoons that we see in you know, illustrations where I'm wearing you know, a, a suit jacket and I'm smoking my pipe and taking notes and my clients are, you know, laid out on the sofa. Like it's, it's not always that. Definitely not. Absolutely. And, and what I'm hearing is what it can cause a barrier between therapists and their clients. If having, trying to fit clients into these cookie cutter molds of, okay, I have to use this therapy practice because this is how I was taught to do it. And that is so detrimental because it doesn't work for everyone. And it specifically was meant, as you were mentioning, it was created by white people for white people, right? A lot of the time. So I'm really seeing that that can become a barrier. And what we like to talk about at the VSE is that we provide individualized services, right? We meet the individual where they're from. Kind of like what you were mentioning, Dr. Chapel, you met with us to see what kind of training we, you know, would benefit for us. And I'd like to actually go back to that because in one of your trainings, you mentioned that different cultural groups may be overdiagnosed in some areas mm -hmm. and underdiagnosed in others. So I'd like to see if you could explain, you know, how the DSM's whiteness can affect uh, people of color or BIPOC 
uh, those who identify in the BIPOC community an incorrect diagnosis? I, um, I'd like to, to even expand that a little bit. So thank you for that question. Um, what I was talking about were different types of communication styles and different ways in which people communicate um, either how they were raised, their value systems, or, or how they know who they are, right? So if we think about the way the DSM was created, and no disrespect to the DSM, I mean, sure. I use it every yeah. day, it is set up as a guideline. So if you, you know, if your clients have these particular symptoms, then, you know, maybe they have depression, right? But what if you're meeting with someone who is different than you, raised different than you, talks differently than you, or even sees the world differently than you? It's a lot, it's, it's very easy for um, a white, a young white woman to meet with an older black man and misinterpret his mannerisms or you know, misinterpret the fact that he is not saying anything for being a mental illness. So there are, there are these things called high context and low context communicators. And at the, the, the at try not to sound like an academic too much, <laughs> thinking about it um, as simple as possible, high context communicators spend a lot of time with body language and different things around them to express themselves. Um, I am a very, very high context communicator, um, more so because I'm fluent in sign language. I use a lot of body language, a lot of facial expressions, and I'm really interested in everything happening around me and bringing that in. A low context communicator would not spend a lot of time worrying about the context, it would be the words. So. Mm -hmm. If a low context communicator is working with a high context communication kind of client, they may misinterpret what they're saying or not saying. And if we're thinking about the ways in which the DSM was written and, and how a lot of the um, instances in it were set up for particular groups, it's really easy to misinterpret something that someone might be doing and label that as being a mental illness, which is why you have lots of um, people of color, BIPOC individuals, most particularly Black and um, Latinx individuals who are overdiagnosed bipolar, most particularly manic, because they spend a lot of time, and I say they, we, spend a lot of time controlling our behavior so that we're not misinterpreted. And then when we become very um, emotional about something or we want to express ourselves and not be misinterpreted, then we may become anxious or, you know, um, we may express ourselves very big, very loud. Um, and so for, you know, some people they may look at it and say, okay, this person was very quiet and all of a sudden now they are angry, right? It, it, you know, or passionate are some words that they use. So um, at a, to not go off on a tangent, I would just say that there are some ways in which people, particularly if you don't have a lot of experience with different cultures may misinterpret something as normal as feeling very passionate about something for being very angry. Um, and then similar, if you think about someone who, who doesn't express themselves in the same way, 
then they may be underdiagnosed. Sorry, can I add to that? Because I was just thinking, yeah. like, especially through the trauma lens, and like Emily said earlier, you know, we are we do provide individualized services. Thankfully, we're like. We have a great team. Um, but I know for a lot of folks, and especially for Black women who have fallen into the stereotype of the angry Black woman, it's kind of their traumatic experiences and trauma responses are erased when other folks don't understand, like, this isn't what's happening here. You know, they're not being, nobody's being combative. People are having a trauma response, a normal response to an abnormal situation. And that adaptation is based on survival from the trauma. But when we bring in those intersections of identity, being a black woman, now we've got a problem because of what? Because of these stereotypes. And then similarly, um, you know, other cultures, and I appreciate you talking about the communication styles. It's something like you said earlier, I guess inherently I'm doing, but I couldn't put a name to it. I'm like, oh, there, of course there's a technical academic term. Um, I'm thinking about um, also for some of our Asian clients who may not, you know, have the same kind of eye contact as others. And this kind of horrified me because I do hear feedback from clients sometimes about other therapeutic experiences. Um, but there are some therapists out in the world who have instructed clients to look at me, look at me, wait, see, I wish y'all could see the reactions that I'm seeing on my screen because we're doing this on Zoom. But that those are things that happen, you know, and that is really harmful. And so, you know, we have to hold these things into awareness and not assume there's a singular right way because there's super isn't. And when we don't, we cause damage. When we tell people who are having a normal trauma response that they are too loud and they need to sit down, or when we tell someone who is not, that's part of their culture is not to have that same kind of eye contact. And we say, look at me. I mean, that's, that's skewed with all kinds of power dynamics in there. But um, that's, I just wanted to mention that as some additional examples. Could I um, add something? I know I feel like we're even tying it back and forth, but something that you said, Brandy, just really kind of, um, I like to call it pinging. I started thinking about or pinging off of several different things. Um, couple things that I'd like to add. Not, when I am um, teaching, when I'm teaching in some of my classes and I've had, I've had um, students become um, upset at me a little bit for kind of talking about this, but um, different cultures display um, different things differently or different things, mental illness differently. So um, a, a perfect example, I think, is the angry black woman trope. Um, when black women are depressed because we, I'm a black woman, um, haven't been given permission to be vulnerable or um, to need help for lack of a better term, um, we tend to hold it in. And we have a very, very hard time asking for help. So what happens is, is nine times out of 10, are the way we display depression and sometimes even anxiety looks like irritability or anger because we don't actually know how to express it, but we know that we are not supposed to be vulnerable. So people will misinterpret depression, trauma response, like you said, anxiety for just being an angry person, right? And really those are the things that people, that, that just means that that person needs help. The other thing I that I think um, is really, really interesting to know, not a lot of people know, 
that um, certain communities, particularly BIPOC individuals, um, are taught that we are supposed to look like we have it all together. And the reason that is, is because, you know, people will point at us as being, you know, poor or, or not um, being worthy and they can point to the way we look. So what ends up happening is, is that usually when you come in contact with a BIPOC individual, not all the time, particularly a woman who doesn't feel very good, she tries her best to look her best. So what I like to tell some of my students who are working with clients that whenever um, you have a, a person that you've been working with, particularly a woman of color that you see all the time and they come into your office dressed really, really nicely and they don't have a reason for it, they probably are not feeling very good. And it's interesting when I say that, particularly to some people, they're like, well, are you saying that, you know, um, white women look disheveled or look, they look, you know, upset or something like that when, you know, um, when they're depressed? And I said, you know, people look how they look, but I can tell you that if you have someone who looks like they are dressed to go to the opera or church and they're coming to visit you and that's not how they normally dress, they probably don't feel great. I think that's such an important thing to bring up and thank you so much for shedding light on it. It's kind of just explaining how us coming from more of a culturally competent lens can really help us connect better with clients. So I think it's such an important thing to bring up. Um, I definitely wanna be your student. That's <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like to lean in a little bit more into how uh, you know, the creators and leaders of therapeutic methods historically and psychology were, were white men and later white women, like we were mentioning before. And then we've talked a little bit about how this has affected the therapeutic process for all kinds of clients and therapists. But I, I would like to ask if either of you would like to share some real world examples that we can kind of sit and analyze about. Sure, I can share some others. I know that I've already shared a few, I feel like. Um, but I think, you know, for me, part of this is, is just a constant, you know, reassessment of what I'm doing, um, always within ethical lanes, right? Uh, but some of the, the real world examples that I have thought of have included, you know, showing up to support someone outside of the therapy space, which is definitely going to be a case by case individualized basis, right? Um, and and I'm, I'm a big fan of the like consult, consult, consult model. So I do that a lot with other professionals and I, I hold the ethics of this profession um, in a really serious way. But I had a client who uh, was a, a different race than me and this client um, invited me to a barbecue in their neighborhood. And I knew immediately based on the boundaries that I was educated on, the answer was no, like there's no therapeutic value to me. You just want me to hang out. Like we're not hanging out. This is a professional relationship. That's all this is. Um, but I thought about it later because I did lose that client by declining the invitation that I could have reassessed that and found a way to make this 
uh, work. So it wouldn't need to be me hanging out and like throwing down everybody at the barbecue, but there could have been a way to promote some community awareness of our services, especially in some of our populations that are not having their needs met. Um, so would I have just been hanging out? No. Would I, I could I have been there in a way that was supportive and kind of just being real? So we destigmatize therapists in general. Right? Yes, I could have. So I think that's a, I think of that a lot, especially, you know, after the magnification of social injustice events last year. Um, I, and this is another real world example, I guess, I personally wanted to destigmatize mental health in relationship to, you know, Black Lives Matter. So my sign was mental health therapist supporting Black Lives Matter, because I wanted people to see that as a white therapist, I support Black Lives Matter. And what did I do? This was years ago when the barbecue thing happened, but I didn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't do the same thing then and I could have. And that I think that's what it takes is that, you know, constant showing almost like the um, accomplice versus ally. You know, I was I had an opportunity to be an accomplice and, and I didn't catch it then. And it is what it is, you know, like. I'm learning and growing from from all my experiences, but I think that's a real real world example um, where the impact of, you know, this is what you do and this is how you do it and you do it in this space and that's what it looks like. It's 50 minutes, turn your sound machine on, you know, strict boundaries. And I do have great boundaries and it is a professional relationship. I'm not trying to stray from that in any way. And I think in order to move away from the, the whiteness of some therapy and psychology, it means walking it into taking action, right? Like walking it into the real world, which which can look very differently. That's great. I, I, I love hearing that story because sometimes it's really hard to understand where our boundaries are and what we should be doing versus what is performance, you know, versus like you said, um, I love the coin, your, your white therapist coin or white therapy, because it just, it, it, it's vanilla, right? This is, this is how you do it. This is what you do. And, you know, there, there's a couple of things as you were telling those stories that I was thinking about. The first one is, if it's more about you than about your client, then it might be wrong. You know, if you're more caring about what you feel like, and I'm not saying that you should do something that feels icky for lack of a better term, but if that client, if you've been working on something for a long period of time and that person really wants to show you something or you know invite you to a graduation or something like that and 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 definitely if you have to decline then you know i i've always been told to to come up with with a great excuse or something like that right if you just really don't feel comfortable but to just say i can't it it, it sometimes makes your person feel like whatever you've been doing with them um, isn't true or that they're still not good enough. Um, I had the best professor, it was um, a woman, she passed away I think uh, about three years ago, but um, it was a professor since I went, I got all three of my degrees at the same school. She was someone who I had as a professor during my bachelor's and my master's program. And she also sat on my dissertation committee. It was um, what I like to call an old social worker. She grew up in uh, New York City uh, and she was just very blunt, straight to the point, and just didn't want to have anything to do with institutions, but she was a social worker, right? And so she would 
give us, tell us all of these really interesting things in class that a lot of them I carry with me. Um, she would tell us that no matter what, we have to try to find strengths in our clients. And it's really hard sometimes when you have a client who are just at the bottom of you know, their rope or, or they have so many problems that you can't even see them as a human being. She said, you find something. You know, if they open the door, then that's a strength they tried, right? Especially if, if it's someone who, and you know, I'm a social worker. So if it's someone who just got their kids taken away or they have all of these things going on, but they let you in and they talk to you, then, then you meet them there. So she would always say that no matter what, whenever she had to go to a home visit or even if she had people coming into the office, that she would always have like Dale bread and, you know, old bagels or, or you know, just expired cereal, whatever. She would pick something up and she would bring it to families or something. And, she, and they would be like, no, no, no. Especially if it was a family who you knew wasn't eating properly or something. And instead of chastising them about what they're not doing wrong, she would say, you know what? I just went by the grocery store and they had these bagels here and you know, I'm not gonna do anything with them and, and give them to them. And so instead of making someone feel shame for their circumstances or making it more about you, she would just see the need and meet the person. And I think that that was just the most valuable, valuable experience that I learned from her. And I think that it's contra to these therapeutic lenses that we're taught to look in. I feel like that was off on a tangent. But. No, that was such a powerful <laughs> statement because, you know, Brandy, you talked about this earlier too, about like the power dynamics between the therapist and the client. It's so important that we talk about that because especially since at the VSC, we, we service people who have gone through trauma and trauma is all about, you know, one person exerting power over the other. And so these relationships and dynamics are so important to talk about. And I'd also like to lean in a little bit into, you were talking about these boundaries and, and I wanted to see if you could kind of talk about what does it mean when we say the person is professional and how does that kind of relate to this conversation? I, I think that, the biggest thing is, is that when we are in these particular situations, when we're meeting clients, when we are being the therapist or the social worker in my case, um, even as a professor, we are wearing kind of our hat, our professional hat. And I remember almost like what you said earlier, Brandy, when I used to walk into a classroom when I first became a professor, you know, my students would look at me and particularly if I had like black students, they were like, oh my gosh, she's black, you know, or I would have other students who would look at me like, oh, is she an angry black woman and we're going to get an F, right? Um, and so I would kind of say, okay, I know that I might not embody the professor or who you think a professor is, but, and then I would list off all of my credentials or something like that, because I felt like this is who they were looking for. Um, when I tried to be who I thought I was supposed to be, I felt I never felt natural. And I'm not saying that I'm not a professional person, but I'm also a people person. I love people. I like to be around people. This whole COVID thing is driving me crazy. I, I recently found an article that said, you know, they we miss hugs because people who are huggers um, aren't able to be with everybody and hug them like we normally do. So 
is that professional? Is it professional that I give my, you know, my students stress balls or when I'm talking to my clients, we are talking about, um, you know, shows that we might watch or different things that we like, right? Is that professional? So when we start thinking about professional um, or the person as the professional, we have to understand that when we we have our training and we understand what we're supposed to do and we understand our boundaries and our ethics and all of these things. But the most important thing is to be the person or to help the person in whatever way they need help. And if that doesn't necessarily look exactly like, you know, the other therapist next to you, or you may be helping another, you know, one therapist one way, I mean, one client one way and another client the other way, it's totally fine, as long as you are being effective and putting out that impact. It looks like you were going to say something, Brandy. Oh, I was, I was going to say I totally agree, because I think authenticity is key to building rapport, and especially through the lens of trauma. I always say, like, people who have experienced trauma, they can sniff you out. If you're going to try to fake it, and you know, good luck. You know, we have to be, I feel like we have to be ourselves. Yes, of course, through the lens of a professional, because we're a therapist. But when I think of person as professional, it's just like um, person as client, you know, like we have all of our lived experiences and our identities and things that happen to us. And, and we're showing up in this role. Um, the power dynamic is such a big thing. And I think often about how like, um, I know people who know me know I love sneakers. And if I was rich, I would probably be a sneaker collector, but I'm not. Um, but I think about like, you know, even manners of dress. And while you're probably not gonna catch me in a blazer, like you're probably just not, I don't, I don't like them. Um, we do dress professionally here. And I remember I had to run into the office. I think I was, when I was an advocate and I was flexing out from a shift and I had flip-flops on and I hopped in the elevator and lo and behold, one of my clients happened to be coming in the building the same day. And I remember thinking, oh, they're going to see me in flip-flops. Yeah, I know, I know. The world. Oh no, I'm not a professional. But you know what I was? I was a person and my client could see that I'm also a person, you know, and this also happened to be another client of, of color, actually. Um, BIPOC. Um, so yeah, it, I think the person is professional means that we're showing up in our roles, we're doing effective work and we're still, I'm still me. And I hope that my clients can pick up on clues about who I am. Am I gonna be for everybody? Absolutely not. Am I trying to be? No, thank you. You know, none of us need to be everything to, to a person, right? Um, but it's just like, like my earrings, you know what I mean? Like if, if people could see my earrings, which are like a lovely shade of orange, but it's like the, the, the female symbol, right? So you're going to get clues about me and who I am as a person while I'm doing this professional lens. And I think that helps build rapport so greatly. Um, there's the other side of the coin where people can project their, their own prejudices and ideologies. And I think that can be harmful in a number of ways. I say with confidence that we don't tolerate that at our agency. Unfortunately, we have had some clients project, you know, some of their own stuff onto um, some staff, BIPOC staff, and it's not negotiable. We expect respect across the board. You know, we respect all of our clients and we ask for the same in return and a violation of respect, but especially around someone's identity just wouldn't be tolerated. Thank you for sharing all of your real world experiences on that. I think it really kind of brings it, breaks it down a lot easier. 
um, for us to kind of see, see these issues. And I wanted to also ask, you know, what can decolonizing these therapeutic practices and theories look like? And how can we expand social justice and practice cultural responsibility within therapy? And exactly what does it mean to be culturally responsible? So I'm gonna hop on the decolonizing because this was a recent thing for me that I was like, duh, oh yeah. So I've been incorporating more somatic, um, you know, approaches to healing. We know The Body Keeps the Score is a very famous book on trauma and we know that trauma is stored in the body. So we'll work through with folks who are comfortable with it um, and it's accessible to them. We'll do some, some mild practices that incorporate the body. But decolonizing this work means keeping in mind that I cannot expect my BICOC BIPOC clients to remain in that state because that is not reality. People do need to be heightened in certain situations. If I have a BIPOC client who gets pulled over by the police, I do not need them to be in a relaxed, you know, ventral vagal state. That's not the time. There needs to be activation. So decolonizing means acknowledging that. And I, and we do, you know, I do when I introduce these exercises and say, the reality is there are times where you're going to need to be heightened. And then the ripple effect of that heightenedness means that you get, I think that's where change comes from, right? If we're just going to, oh, let's just get in this, like, you know, we're all meditating on a mountaintop and everything's in, that's not reality. We're not trying to become puddles, but through trauma healing, we want to relax the body. And there are certain situations where your body is not going to be relaxed. And I'm not trying to counter that. And none of us are. So to me, I think that's a, a good example of, of decolonizing some of the theoretical approaches. Um, I can jump in and talk about cultural responsiveness, but I want to mention the fact that when you just talked about being pulled over by police, I heard a siren behind you or behind one of you, which I thought was really, really, really interesting. Yes. Right there. So that was kind of I scary. heard it too. It's out my window. Yeah. <laughs> kind of scary. Um, I think a lot of what I've been talking about when I've been talking about meeting people where they are um, really has to do with being culturally responsive. Um, you know, just very similar to talking about decolonizing. It basically just means understanding that I, as a professional, have learned a therapeutic intervention, but I may need to change it just a little bit in order to make it effective to my person. Or I may need to um, take two or three different interventions and kind of mold them together to be able to help someone through something that is very particular um, to them. And most particularly if we're talking about, when, when we mean cultural responsiveness, we're not necessarily just talking about race and ethnicity. We're talking about gender. We're talking about orientation. Um, I have several clients who are, have disabilities and the ways in which I work with them. So I consider that person um, and their environment and I try to meet them there and help um, change or adjust whatever th therapy I'm using or in I'm using using in order to be responsive to their culture. So that's um, definitely uh, what it means. It just means to be adaptable, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Again, kind of that meeting them where they're at that we're, we're, I'm hearing a lot. And I just wanted to know if you think that things like Black History Month could actually help with this. What are your thoughts on that? Eh, I don't know. It becomes really, really hard. I, I, 
am so excited that, you know, we get a month, but you know, the running joke is we get the, the shortest month <laughs> of the year, right? Um, and so there, I love, I love, love, love um, t-shirts and, and quirky t-shirts that have different um, sayings on them. Um, there's a shirt that I seen that that basically said, you know, I'm black every month of the year, <laughs> you know, or that Black History Month should be every month, right? Um, but I do appreciate, so those are kind of my jokes there, but I do appreciate Black History Month because it does give a time to be able to highlight some of the disparities and some of the richness of the Black community. A lot of times when um, you know, you are talking about different things that have to do with, with Black and African-American individuals. It's coming from a deficit perspective. It's coming from saviorism. It's coming from let's fix these people. Um, several years ago, um, when I was thinking about going into my doctorate program, um, I was really, really affected by um, a lot of the injustices that I was starting to notice around Black men and Black people in general. Um, I've also been married almost 25 years to uh, a black man and I have a brother who is black. And so, you know, it starts to become very, very um, personal um, thinking about this. And, you know, whenever we see something, you know, like what happened to George Floyd or, or something out in public, regardless to whether or not you know that person, empathy, you know, you can feel that that person has family or friends or people and it's painful. So I think bringing these things, you know, to light or having a month to highlight it is amazing and very, very important. But I also think that we have to continue to think about how, you know, the other 11 months, there are also injustices that happen um, with the Black community and in other communities as well. Absolutely. And, and while you were talking, I'm, I'm wondering if this year's Black History Month will look a little different. And I, I have a feeling it might. Uh, but absolutely, I think that as always, there's always a lot more work that can be done. So I appreciate your your answer with that. I wanted to also ask, are there therapeutic methods that actually do come from a cultural lens? There are some. <laughs> um, and it's funny too, because I do a lot of research in this area. Um, there are some therapeutic lenses that are created, you know, by folks of color to help assist, you know, other people or just marginalized people in general. But there's also a lot of therapeutic interventions that are very helpful to working with um, particular um, groups of people, particularly like people of color. Um, one that jumps out at me is narrative therapy. So narrative interventions are amazing because um, most folks of color, particularly black and indigenous people are storytellers. And the ways in which we get through trauma sometimes is just talking through the story and getting it out. And so when I'm working with people who have experienced trauma um, or who are trying to work through situations, um, I do um, narrative therapy with them. Um, also, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is great. Um, even though, you know, that is not something we think about all the time with, you know, folks of color, but it helps with symptom management and it helps to be able to um, kind of get a person to see that they're not a bad person. They've just developed negative coping skills. So to get them to replace their negative coping skills with more positive or healthy coping skills. Um, I think uh, motivational interviewing is amazing. 
um, just to be able to lift up or motivate um, is important. And um, one of my favorite, favorite, favorites is solution focused because uh, particularly folks of color are very action oriented. So if you're working with a BIPOC individual, nine times out of 10, they wanna get to a solution and they wanna figure out how to get it done. Um, and so just simply talking about it, we don't like that very much. So um, solution focused is a big one that I like to use. There, there are several other ones as well but those are the ones that are kind of my go-to when you mentioned like externalizing like when you talked about cognitive behavioral therapy and talking about how kind of externalizing and looking at it that way it always makes brings me back to I think Brandy you said it where it's not what's wrong with me it's what happened to me and I think that that's always amazing I always like bringing that up so thank you I also wanted to shift the conversation a little bit about going back to your trainings that you give Dr. Chapel on, on anti-racism specifically to therapists. And also, you know, how, first off, how do you do that specifically? And then also what can therapists do or where can they start if they want to be more culturally responsible and anti-racist in their therapy sessions? This is such a big question. So I'm going to um, try to make it small because um, yeah, I could talk about this all day and it's something I'm, you can hear my smile that I love, love, love talking about making therapies accessible for people and particularly in communities of where we don't believe, um, all the time in mental health, you know, we don't want to go to a therapist because we're not crazy and we're not praying hard enough, or we're not believing in God, those sorts of things. And it's really, really important to let someone know that, you know, everyone needs someone to talk to. And even if we don't call it therapy, it's really important. Like what you were saying, Brandy, about being in college and having listening buddies, I think is what you called it. We all need to have listening buddies, right? So um, I have several clients who will come to me because, um, because I'm a black uh, female, um, being a black um, individual and being kind of afraid to approach it, right? And so they'll kind of come to me and say, mm, my family doesn't believe in this, you know, I don't know if this is for me, you know, can we talk about it? And, and then I end up having just a conversation with them, you know, like the relationship and I acknowledge it. And I talk about ways in which to talk to their family about therapy. And, you know, it never ceases to um, amaze me that they'll come back, you know, a couple months later or something, and they'll say a couple things to me. Number one, you're not like any therapist I've ever met, um, or, or I've had therapy before and it's been different, right? And the second thing that they'll say is, is that everybody needs therapy. You know, like they'll say to me, they'll just be like, this is so easy. All I'm doing is talking to you about stuff and I'm making sense of it. So I love hearing that but I'm not doing anything special. And that's what I tell them. I said, all I'm doing is giving you a platform or a place to be able to talk about what's really going on. And when you start talking down to, um, to yourself or saying that I'm a bad person for doing this, I explain to you how the circumstances that happened to you made you feel bad. Or I explain to you how you were taught never to express your emotions, which is why you have an anger problem. And we identify how those emotions, um, you know, external things happen that create the emotions that then create how you behave. And we learn to work on that. So what I normally tell people 
when they want to just kind of start thinking about culturally responsive therapy is yes, identifying who you are and what your cultural background is, because obviously you have to recognize whether you have biases towards certain people or races or, or genders or religion, or you, you, you've been taught all growing up that people who are gay are bad. You have to recognize that, but you also have to be open enough to ask your client how you can help them and really listen. And that's, you know, a, the very first thing. The second thing is, is understanding cultural identity, you know, reading something about cultural identity, reading those books about being anti-racist, understanding, you know, reading things about um, health disparities. So it's reading, it's talking to people, particularly people from those particular backgrounds who are healthy. So don't go out and look for that stereotype, but you know, if you want to work with indigenous people or if you want to work with uh, black people or, or, or Latinx people, you know, find a, a therapist that's of that background and talk to them. So I think the biggest thing that happens with us is that we're kind of taught to make assumptions about people without asking them the questions. You know, when we get into those situations, we don't ask. Um, I, I have so many funny stories, so I won't go off on a tangent here, but I, I was um, doing these groups, um, culturally responsive groups is what I, what I called them with um, um, clinicians. And um, I had a group of, um, uh, it was a group of four um, white female um, therapists. And we we're talking about ways to be more culturally responsive, already culturally competent. And so we read um, a book together called, um, So You Wanna Talk About Race. And we would kind of talk about different scenarios and different things that we, we would do. And we would make these jokes. It became, you know, after three or four weeks, it was almost like a little book club. It became, we became very comfortable with each other and it became very funny, you know, talking about our dogs and different things that were going on. But we, I had this one person um, in the group who um, is a, um, kind of a 35 year old uh, white woman who lives in, in Arizona. And she was saying that all of her black female clients would ghost her or leave and she couldn't figure out why. You know, she would say that they would come and then all of a sudden they would be gone, right? And so I said, and so she made the comment, but none of their situations had to do with race all of their problems had to do with trauma or anxiety or depression or something. And at this time it was two of us in the room and we both just started laughing so hard. And she said, what's so funny? And I said, if they were black women, race had something to do with it. It might not have been their primary problem, but it was one of, it was an issue, right? Black women living in Arizona, there's not very many Black people who live in Arizona. So I made that joke, right? And so um, she was kind of horrified, but very open to, you know, kind of learning how to better engage. And so what I did was, is I helped her create um, a background form that she would give to her people to ask them, you know, not only, you know, about their race and ethnicity and religion and background, but how to ask them if this had, any, you know, if race has anything to do with, you know, your issue or whatever. And so she developed a way to ask. She would always ask, particularly her folks of color, about how, um, you know, their race and ethnicity might 
affect them or how they think it might be affecting um, whatever they're working on in therapy. And, you know, now she has so many clients of color <laughs> and I, I'm laughing because it, it it's not funny, but it is because it was like, for her, it was just like, what do you mean? Their problems don't have anything to do with this. But once she felt open to asking, because she says, is it okay? And I'm like, absolutely. I'm not saying you have to say racism is your problem, but you can ask as the person's therapy, do you think that this has to do with your identity or your background or whatever? So I think that it's developing a way to be open and transparent to ask the questions and you know, letting your client know that it is okay to talk about these things because you know you might have a, a BIPOC individual or you know a gay individual or someone who is dealing with a, a therapist who's not don't share an identity marker with them, and they don't always know that it's comfortable to talk about that thing. That sounds really powerful to kind of letting them kind of like, here's your platform, you know, talk about what, how you feel about this. I think that's really powerful. Um, and it seems like kind of a simple thing to do that can have a really strong impact, which is amazing. I wanted to also bring up, you know, the current political and social climate in America. And we've been talking a little bit about it and how this may have affected either your trainings, Dr. Chapel, or maybe how it's affected your sessions. Uh, you and Brandy, and if you are comfortable sharing, how has this maybe affected you personally as a therapist? Oh, wow. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I think that 2020 itself and, and even January of 2021 feels like an extension of 2020. It feels like we're never getting out of here. I seen a meme that uh, on January 1st, somebody's, it, it, the meme said that it was um, December 32nd, <laughs> 2020. Um, so that's where we are. Um, so um, I think the biggest thing has been many of us, all of us are living in today. Right. We all had to kind of adjust, um, you know, to COVID. Lots of us are just like now doing this on Zoom where we probably wouldn't be doing it on Zoom. Um, all of those things we had to kind of adapt to. I think the biggest thing that I've heard from, um, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about my clients um, and then um, my colleagues and even my students have been, if I, if I think about um, colleagues, we have, it, it's, it's very rare that you're in a situation in which you are experiencing the same exact thing your client is experiencing. So it's really hard to understand how much you can share, relate to, or talk about when you're trying to help someone else through something. You are the professional, right? Um, but I think about the events of January 6th and I happen to be, I usually don't have my, my TV playing. Um, my TV just happened to be on um, and it was captioned and I was talking to someone about, I don't even remember what, and I'm watching this thing happen, right? And you know, my, the adrenaline is going on in my body and I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is this real, what's going on? And then all of these emotions happened. You know, I've been in the Capitol so I started, I started thinking, wait a minute, they're in the rotunda, they're, they're on the floor of the house. This is crazy. When I went on the floor of the house, I had to do, you know, I took my, my 10 year old 
and it wasn't even in session and, and we had to leave everything we had outside and we got checked like you wouldn't, you know, you would have thought the president was in there how many times we got checked. So I was having these different visceral reactions, but I wasn't in a place in which I could express that. So we, a lot of times have to hold in different things. You know, when I saw, you know, I, I never watched the video of George Floyd because I'd seen enough still shots to know that I didn't need to put that in my body. I didn't need to put that in my subconscious, but it didn't, stop me from thinking about my husband and my brother and my uncles and all of the other black men that I love and that I you know know. So those are the types of things that we have to figure out how to deal with. So we have to be really, really careful with our own self-care, just like taking in trauma and listening to things, it becomes really important. Um, but the thing I, I think, you know, just throw, kind of putting myself aside, has been trying to find ways to support people around you and to even be able to provide that extra support to you know, your clients or you know, to my students in that case. It was really difficult because everyone that I was coming in contact with, particularly last semester, I was thinking about my students, everyone was anxious. And to try to not feed off of people's anxiety to be able to get whatever done you need to get done, but then also recognize that we all need to rest was really hard because there was so much need out there. I also, with the, 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 the election, had lots of individuals, particularly, I have, I have lots of white male clients um, and they wanted to talk to me about how to talk to their family members about politics. Um, and, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I, I will talk to my clients about whatever they need to talk about, but, you know, they're hiring me to be their therapist, not to have feelings. <laughs> so we strategize and we talk about these different things. And what became uh, really interesting to me is usually in every single conversation, maybe about 15 minutes in, the person would stop and go, wait, are you okay? Um, and I really appreciated that from my clients. Um, and I would say, yes, this is fine. We can talk about this. But I would then have noticed that I would have to take a deep breath. And sometimes I would be holding my breath because, you know, I often have clients and students tell me about how racist their family members are or, you know, how, you know, all of the stereotypes, all of the assumptions, everything that I as a Black person know is not true you know, this is what all my family believes. And what do I do about that? You know, and it's, it's, it's interesting because it requires a lot of patience and empathy to go through it. Um, and so I make sure that I always build breaks in. And I always remember, or I try to remember that this person is asking me to help them. And I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm usually able to get through it, but it is, it is a challenge. It is a very different type of um, atmosphere and environment. Thank you so much for sharing that, that story uh, and being vulnerable with us about that. And I think it really just highlights what we were talking about is that person is professional. And I really appreciate you um, sharing that. I don't know if you wanted to say anything, Brandy. I want to thank you as well, Dr. Chapel, because I was like, yes, yes. I mean, you can see me nodding my head, but um, I really appreciate you sharing 
you know, your personal experience, you know, not just kind of the generalized therapy talk, because it is important to acknowledge that, you know, even as professionals, we're still people, we're not exempt from life because we get these like frame degrees that somebody stamped somewhere, you know, like, so I, I really appreciate your honesty. Um, and, and I did think about that a lot with different therapists, but it is, it's kind of a strange place to be with like therapists supporting therapists. Unless you have a close relationship, it's like, well, I've already always known you'd have good boundaries. And well, I guess, you know, this is like navigating that space in addition to the COVID space, in addition to, you know, the very real economic impact on a lot of folks' lives and transitioning the blurring of boundaries between working at home and what that looks like. I love dog barks personally. Um, but you know sometimes it's at the wrong time in a session but it, it has been it has been strange to be a therapist in these times for sure um specific to the political events i've seen with a lot of my clients um i kind of see like a couple different things and i'm not i'm not meaning to oversimplify but what stood out to me i guess has been the people who feel validated they had known this has been coming for four years i mean we i we have many clients who came to us 2016 election and there's a reason for that because this is the same person who was very vocal about willingness to sexually assault women and i'm not going to repeat the quote but i think it was pretty infamous so being a certified rape crisis center we had a lot of people come in because that was that was enough um then we had the kavanaugh hearings another spike in services so really this has been like four years coming or you know four and a half years whatever it is so a lot of clients were actually like see they were feeling gaslit by you know either personal or larger communication sources who were just kind of like oh come on so there's some people who who actually felt validated like we knew this was going to happen and another thing that stood out to me is that i saw a lot of people feel re-traumatized almost like through a parallel process so maybe it activated a grief cycle for some folks or you know different things were even if it wasn't a client of color just the general like loss of control um absence of consequence which was a thing and then you know having some people say it, it's like straight from the power and control wheel like come on now let's just move along and it's baffling uh, to me as a therapist who works, you know, in the, the tra trauma field. But um, for my clients, I think, you know, I do have a lot of empathy for folks. I have a lot of respect for people who survive difficult things. And I have, you know, I hope to have a, a larger perspective on who the people I'm working with are. I really believe lived experience has a, a big impact on how we navigate some things. Um, and so for me, it's been, it's just been an interesting ride in a number of ways. And I actually feel really grateful to my clients who have been like, you know, like, girl, I see, you know what I mean? Because it helps me feel a little real because inside that's what I'm saying too. Like, what in the world is happening? You know, um, but I, I, I think like Dr. Chapel was saying, um, having supportive, whatever it is, is is critical to this field it always has been um it it, it kind of continues to be so in a really big way and i'm very grateful to connect with other professionals so that i can check myself so they can check themselves and so we have places to talk about our stuff 
I have a therapist, you know, I'm going to normalize therapy forever. I mean, clearly I'm drinking the Kool-Aid over here, but you know, it's important that we take care of ourselves as well um, and do that in the right environments. So this is not funny at all. Uh, I mean, cause it's just, we just have to think about um, the context that we're in, but you know, like you said, there was so much, I, you know, I told you so, or we knew this was going to happen. Um, you know, I don't know if, if the audience actually has heard of Black Twitter. I think lots of people have heard of Black Twitter, um, but Black Twitter was on fire that day. Um, and it was mostly memes of Black people drinking tea, looking at the TV, like, and not that we didn't care, not that people weren't affected, but it almost, like you said, felt like validation a little bit. And I also heard several people when um, the inauguration day came and, and we were able to kind of see power transition, most people were very nervous that it was not gonna be a peaceful transition, very nervous. It doesn't feel like it was just last week. It feels like it was like three or four weeks ago, but people kept saying um, that collectively the country has been gaslit for the last four years. And that's what it felt like. And so for those of us who work in this type of field and are busy, you know, trying to help people heal, constantly being afraid of what might happen or what you might see on the TV, um, you, you just did not know how to plan for it. And it was exhausting. And I think, you know, to cap 2020, that was what I kept telling people, you know, they were like, how are you doing? For the most part, I did very well but I was tired a lot. Um, and so, you know, I, I run support groups for BIPOC therapists. So, um, you know, we can just talk about being tired. And it's interesting too, because I, I have all of these self-care things that I put together and everything, and I never use any of it. We talk about counter-transference and for people who don't know what that means, I know I'm talking to kind of a, a, um, a, a layman audience, but, um, Countertransference is when your therapist is emotionally affected by something that the client said or something that happened, and we have to get our emotions together. So that was what was happening quite a bit, and that's what happens with a lot of my um, BIPOC uh, therapists that I help support. Um, that you know we are trying to figure out how to help our people and how to be there for them, and we're also trying to figure out how to deal with our emotions at the same time. Absolutely. I appreciate you both sharing your experiences kind of as like a final couple questions here. What can someone do if they do feel unsafe in a therapy session in regards to their racial or other social identities? I mean, I can speak to how we work here at BSC. There's always someone to communicate with if there's a concern um, about any of our staff who are working with clients. You can bring it up directly and there may be therapeutic value. However, you know, if if it's a, a true instance of being harmed or damaged, which I wouldn't see that happening based on, you know, our team, you know, there are other people to go to, whether it's a supervisor, we have actually um, all of our clients acknowledge that there's a grievance policy. And so there are ways to express those concerns. 
but I think if some if someone's feeling unsafe in therapy, specifically trauma therapy, it can be a little tricky if we're not doing our work to understand who they are. Because sometimes we might feel unsafe or triggered by someone who reminds us of our perpetrator or abuser. Um, and that might be a little bit different, um, but it, it's important to explore. A lot of um, folks, let's say for example, um, some people say, oh, I can't work with a male because I was assaulted by a male. I can't. There actually can be a lot of therapeutic value to working with a male because that's a reparative experience. But that's only if you're in a place to be able to tolerate that. We have the window of tolerance. And so we want to make sure people have the, the ability to work through that dynamic. Um, so I do want to acknowledge that there can be therapeutic just because we're saying we feel unsafe, we need to check, like, is this my trauma talking, you know, and am I ready to explore it? Or is there something else going on where I'm feeling like this is this is a bigger issue in terms of, you know, I'm, again, I couldn't see anybody here at VSC, so I guess I'll talk to general therapy, but, you know, if someone's can, a microaggression or, or something overt, like the example earlier where I heard clients share that a therapist said, look at me, I mean, Oof, that still kind of gets me. I just can't believe it. Cause I even saying it, I feel like I just got in trouble. You know, if my therapist said, look at me, I would be like, Oh, what did I do? What, what do you mean? Look at you. Like, I'm, you know, but, um, that would be something you could bring to the therapist. I would, you know, I would probably check that out. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of ways to do it. So I've had friends contact me and say, Hey, my therapist did this. Is this okay? And I say, Oh my God. Okay. So here's how you can make a report to the board, you know, because it, what it winds up doing is it damages the profession as a whole. And here we are already trying to combat some stigmas in a lot of different um, cultures and communities. So, you know, there are codes of ethics and ways to report it outside if it's truly an issue of, of safety, but it's a little bit of a tricky question, in my opinion, because of the trauma aspect. While I was thinking about um, um, this in context, I've actually had um, several people, just like you said, contact me, you know, offline sometimes to complain about certain things that people are doing. And I try to, I try to talk them through it. I try to say, you know, um, what, you know, what happened, maybe you can look at it from this perspective. And I really try to help them see the other perspective. But um, there has been um, some instances that have happened and I'm, I'm being very careful not to um, give too much information, but there's been instances, particularly with all of the racial stuff that's going on in which maybe a client of color will want to have, um, or a BIPOC client will want to have a conversation with their therapist about, um, you know, maybe racial trauma or things happening. And, and, and it could even be um, a white individual who wants to have just a racial conversation. Um, I mean, I know that for a lot of people, just the very mention of race or ethnicity or any of those identities, particularly race, is just scary. Um, and people don't wanna talk about it. Um, we've been conditioned in our society to, to kind of do that colorblind thing and avoid it and just not bring it up or not acknowledge it. Um, if I go back to kind of that story I told earlier, for BIPOC individuals not talking about race, if we wanna talk about it, feels traumatic. It feels like we're being erased. 
And, um, you know, there's been a couple of instances, like I said, in which the client wanted to have a conversation, like maybe about what happened with George Floyd. And their therapists have either said, we're not going to talk about that, or we're not going to talk about politics. Um, or they've said, you know what, I feel comfortable and safe talking about it. And then they themselves become triggered by something the person says. Um, and, you know, so I've had, I had somebody contact me, um, you know, kind of offline talking about something that their, their therapist had said, and they've canceled therapy because of it. Um, and then they wanted to know after the fact if they should, you know, if they should file a complaint against that therapist. And so uh, it was a real kind of sticky situation for me because I didn't really know this person very well. And I just, you know, wanted to be able to help them work through whatever that they were feeling, you know, and it was, it was particularly about Black Lives Matter. Um, the person themselves was a BIPOC individual, but not Black. Um, so long story short, I talked to the person, not as their therapist, but just as a, an individual. And I helped them process, you know, how they felt. And then they made a decision to, to file a complaint, you know, against that person to just actually say why they, why they canceled therapy in the first place. Um, and then um, spent a little bit more time, um, not canceling the person, but working with them to help them validate that it was okay for them to do that because they felt like they had done something wrong. Um, and so really it just took time listening and validating um, them and, and allowing them to be able to make their own decision because it was a really, like I said, it was a, it was a sticky situation because I was not their therapist. And, you know, um, I didn't want to get into, you know, a therapeutic um, relationship with the person, but I also wanted to be able to give um, quality advice to them. And so really, I just listened um, and I just validated their experience. And, you know, I just kind of said, you know, um, who knows why, you know, your therapist felt the way um, they felt. But if you felt like this wasn't something um, that was good, or you felt like you were hurt by what they said, then it, it is perfectly okay for you um, to file a complaint with that person's, you know, employer or whatever, however you need to deal with it. Um, so it ended up turning out um, okay, you know, um, but it was, it just, it, it felt so complicated because I felt like what the person had said was very, very out of line, but I didn't want to kind of jump on this bandwagon to, to trash the person um, because the, 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 the client had felt so hurt by what their therapist had said in the first place. I appreciate you once again sharing that. And, and I love that you both are bringing up different options too, you know, they, they don't have to feel stuck. Brandy, was there something you wanted to jump in on? Yeah, yeah. I, and, and, you know, I do, I, I, I'm, I'm appreciating hearing what you're sharing because it, it's, ooh, it's, it's messy, you know, and I feel very protective of the profession and I want us all to be like, I mean, we have continuing education requirements, but the truth is not everybody's going to dive in the same way and there can be harm done. Um, I think, you know, the code of ethics, like do no harm. You know, that's one of them. Just just do no harm. You know, like maybe we're not magicians and we can't heal everybody's lives in all areas, although I wish I had that magic wand. But I was thinking about um, the way we kind of build trust in a therapy relationship and how we test the space here and there. And we might be able to test it and see like, is this person capable of holding this? And a lot of times we're we might be pleasantly surprised. 
And because then you, I'm thinking about the the person you were sharing, uh, Dr. Chapel, who their their request was shut down, and that aspect was of their identity was just erased, or, or you know whatever it is. And that's exactly why I was saying earlier, it is my responsibility as a professional, it is our responsibility as a professional to stay aware of what's happening. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm just, oh, I, I didn't learn that. Oh, I, I signed up for one event and I got my CEUs. N no, 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 no. Yes, we have to do that to keep our license, but I really think it's on the therapist to hold themselves accountable to continue expanding education in all areas if you're going to work with different clients, whether that's a difference in race or ethnic identity or gender identity or whatever it is. Yes, I want my clients to tell me about their lived experience, and I don't think it's their job to teach me everything in the world. It is my job to have enough understanding so I can hold space for what my clients need. So I just thought of that with your example and thought it was important to reiterate. Absolutely. And yeah, we talked a little bit about how someone could maybe bring up with their therapist how they'd like to explore their racial identity and and it's unfortunate that your example, you know, Dr. Chapel, I'm so sorry that that happened to that person, but I'm glad that they had, they re were able to reach out to you and get support from you. What would you say to a client that would still want to bring that up though in their therapy session? How, how could they do that? How can they share that they'd like to explore their racial identity, for example? Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting because I have lots of people Kind of ask those questions and it just depends on where they are in in their racial ethnic or kind of white identity development not a lot of people know that but we all regardless to whether or not we know it we um living in the u.s we all develop an identity based on race um, based on being a white person or based on being a racial ethnic person and you know it, it's it kind of comes in levels and whether or not you're aware of race, um, whether or not you don't think um, it has anything to do with or affects anybody's um, life or livelihood and to the fact that you think, you know, you might come all the way over to an anti-racist identity. So if a client or person wants to kind of have that conversation you know, I'm, I'm blunt, just, you know, kind of like what you said, uh, Brandy, I would say, you know, ask and tell them that, that you want to talk about it um, or ask them if they're comfortable having that conversation. Um, hopefully they would have developed a relationship with their uh, therapist that is open to be able to have those kinds of conversations. Um, but, you know, don't, I would just say, try not to be afraid to bring up anything with your therapist because you don't think that they are able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, I hear that quite a bit with people saying, you know, I won't talk about this because my therapist isn't, doesn't, you know, um, isn't well-versed in this or something like that. And I always think, well, maybe you should get another one or, or right. you know, something, you know. Um, people have to start somewhere. There's also um, individuals, and this is where it gets really kind of sticky because you know, as a, a BIPOC individual, I don't wanna have to teach my therapist everything about race mm -hmm. or everything about if, you know, if I was LBGT or whatever. I, or even I, I talk to my, my daughter who's deaf all the time you know, about not wanting to teach people about deafness. Sometimes you just get tired of trying to get people to understand it. But 
you're open to them asking you questions in context. Um, and so I think that if people understand that, like, you know, you can have a conversation with your therapist about whatever is going on with you and talk about how race affects that and get them to help you through it. And they don't have to be an expert in that. But what they do have to do is they have to be open enough to be able to listen and to help you process how it affects you. I think with my other example, that therapist just basically was like, no, we're not talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that person kind of felt like they had done something wrong. Yeah, I, I, I love, of course, that you use that example of like taking a risk in therapy because and any of my clients who would know me know that I like to push a little for the risk because we come to therapy to change and not to stay the same. Um, but I think also, um, you know, we're not necessarily generalists here. So I think it, it if I personally were in a place to explore my racial identity, I would definitely be, listen, I bet everybody Googles us anyway. They're reading our credentials. We know what's going on. Um, but there are people like you, Dr. Chapel, who have done extensive research and are definitely just from like looking at your bio, you're going to be a safe person to make that exploration with. Um, but even at VSE, if someone's feeling like they're healed from their trauma and their lives have gotten a lot better and they feel lighter and they want to expand to explore other therapeutic avenues, including including race and ethnic identity, um, this is part of the reason we have these kinds of community relationships, right? So I can say, awesome, I know someone, you know, and I know this person, and maybe you want to check out this place, and, and here are some folks who can who can do that work because, you know, yes, there are generalists, but I think it can be helpful sometimes, like you were saying, to just be with someone that you know that's already going to get it, you know? So you're not like, like we were talking about earlier with the intersectionality education. It's not like, everyone let's define the term for 30 minutes, you know, and it's like, okay, do you want me to define it or do you already have that so we can go from there? So having that foundation. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to thank you both so much for taking the time to record this podcast with me. I I really learned a lot from both of you. And I think that this is going to be so helpful for everyone listening. I just wanted to give you one more chance if you'd like to say anything else. Thank you so much for um, just giving the space to be able to talk about things that, um, you know, I love um, kind of thinking about and helping people work through, but there's not always an opportunity to just talk about some of those differences um, with individuals and how that might affect the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, uh, same. It, it was is really um, exciting for me to be part of this conversation. I appreciate being asked. I've enjoyed, you know, um, being able to learn what we have as an agency so far through Dr. Chapel's work. Um, and this was a, a, a great conversation to have. I also see it as the long game. <laughs> you know, just being a realist, not negative. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, that we'll continue to grow and um, change in, in positive ways. But um, I feel like this conversation went a little bit all over the place. Honestly, I'm going to acknowledge that. And I think that maybe that's a little bit what that's like. Maybe this is an experiential metaphor for what doing this work is. It does go a little bit all over the place. It's going in history. It's going into current events. It's going into person as professional. It's going into, you know, education and ethics and, you know, exploring decolonization. So 
I think that's an important thing to remember. And then this is probably a little cheesy, but I wanted to include it. Um, Ruth King, who wrote a book called Mindful on Race, has a quote where she says, racism is a heart disease and it is curable. And I want to believe that very much. Um, and so I hope that other folks can connect with that in some way too. Awesome. And, and I really appreciate it. I think that's a wonderful place to sign off. So Thank you to the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you're not alone. And once again, thank you so, so much, Dr. Chapel and Brandy for joining me today. Thank you, Emily. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you.